0: Welcome to Jews on Film, the podcast where we look at films both old and new through our unique Jewish
1: lens. I'm Harry Ottensasser and I'm your Jewish film podcaster. And joining me as always, I'm Daniel Zana. I'm a documentary filmmaker, video editor, and I lost my cat, Mr. Jink. So I'm hoping afterwards if you guys could maybe look around, see if you can help me find it. Maybe our guests can help today. He's a journalist, film critic, and lecturer on film and baseball. He has been published in The New York Times, The Ringer, The Guardian, The Atlantic, LA Review of Books, Defector, GQ, Esquire, L, and Wired. He's an on camera reporter for BBC's Talking Movies and presents for Smithsonian Associates on cinema and the Oscars. His first book, Baseball the Movie, will be published in May 2024. Noah Gattel, welcome to Jews on Film. Thank you guys for having me.
2: Uh, this is my first uh, Jewish podcasting appearance, so I'm super excited to get into all of this.
1: Wow. Okay. Well, thanks for picking us t- to be your first. That's it's a true honor.
2: Well, it was either this or the Jewish Baseball Podcast, so it was 50-50.
1: Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Today, we're going to be discussing uh, the film Meet the Parents from 2000, directed by Jay Roach, uh, You know, starring Ben Stiller, Terry Polo, and Robert De Niro. Uh, Now, before we get a little bit too far into the uh, film's discussion and themes and things like that, uh, we wanted to kind of ask what made you sort of pick this film? You had tossed around a few others, but uh, this was kind of one that we ultimately landed on. Do you want to give us a little bit of insight as to why we picked this or why you picked it? Yeah.
2: This movie does mean a lot to me uh, as a Jewish person. And to explain it, I got to give you a little bit of background into my own relationship with Jewishness, which is... I didn't really know I was Jewish until I was in my late teens. I um, my, my dad is 100% Jewish. He was, uh, but I wasn't close with him growing up. He wasn't around very much. He was around sporadically. And my mom always had an appreciation for Jewish culture, but she wasn't Jewish as far as we knew. We later found out that her father was Jewish, my grandfather, mm. and that he had hid his Jewishness uh, in the business world in New York in the 50s and 60s even going so far to uh, go by the moniker A. Edward Miller and hiding the fact that his first name was Abraham. He actually told yep. us that his name was anonymous, that they hadn't given him a name in the hospital.
1: <laughs> so it million. took, wow. yeah,
2: it was it was very clever. Um, so I didn't know the full extent of my Jewishness. I wasn't raised with any Jewish holidays, Was never went to temple, never went to shul. Um, I even went to like a Unitarian church for a couple of years, which is sort of a Jewish thing to do. Um, And it wasn't until I was 17 that I did start seeing my dad again. And he took me to a Woody Allen movie in New York. We was uh, Deconstructing Harry, which I think is a very good film. And we went and saw it at Lincoln Plaza on the Upper West Side. And I was in this theater just surrounded with Jewish people. And I found myself, you know, laughing at all the same jokes, many of which were about Jewishness, not all of them, but a lot of them. And it was a real light bulb moment for me where I sort of felt like, well, these are my people. I didn't know I had people, but I can tell these are my people because we're all laughing at the same things. And that was sort of the beginning of my journey in terms of understanding myself as a Jew, which is still ongoing. As I mentioned before we started recording, I've never celebrated Hanukkah. Like I'm not a religiously Jewish person at all. Um, but I do identify as a Jew and I am certainly culturally Jewish in many ways. And I bring this up to to point out that I think Meet the Parents in a way could provide like a very similar experience for some confused Jews out there, because it is a film to me that is incredibly Jewish. And yet, if you're not looking at it through that lens, like you might not see it that way at all. The Jewishness might seem like a sidebar, like a thing that is mentioned twice and never mentioned again. And in that way, I think it really uh, universalizes the Jewish experience in a lot of ways. You know, it's uh, to me the film is built around this very simple singular feeling, which is being out of place.
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know,
2: being somewhere where you don't quite belong, where you don't know the rules, and yet you have to fit in. And that's our thing. I mean, that's been our thing for uh, you know thousands of years. And I grew up in a a very similar community to the one portrayed in this film. In fact, a couple of the scenes are shot 10 minutes from my house uh, that I grew up in. And so I didn't have a lot of Jewish friends growing up. So I totally get this feeling of going to someone's house and not understanding the rules and not quite fitting in and not quite knowing why either. And sort of thinking the whole thing's a little bit unfair. And when I was growing up, I didn't identify that as a Jewish thing. But when I watched this movie and the more that I learn about myself and my cultural heritage. I think it's a completely Jewish thing. So to make a long story short, the film really universalized the Jewish experience and it helped me understand my own Jewishness better. So how could I not choose it?
0: Daniel, I, I think we can kind of throw away the outline, skip to the end, just go to the rankings. Totally. I'm pretty sure that just covered most, if not all, that I was really excited to talk about. I know, and- right? It's good to be starting it because, you know, we'll we'll definitely have the time to really dig into it. But I think all those dynamics that you were talking about between, you know, these families, uh, between uh, Ben Stiller's character kind of and, you know, this family, I think they're really present. I'm interested in what you were saying about how it's kind of, it's a little bit like for a general audience in a sense that you might not pick up on it depending on what you're looking at. Because I watched this movie with my wife the other night and we were going back and forth. And she looked at me and she's like, this isn't Jewish. What are you going to talk about? And I'm like, First of all, if you've been listening to the pod, you know that we're very good at pulling out the outsider assimilation reads like in there. But then I said, second of all, and we'll get into this when we discuss, but there's a there's a a lot of like explicit mentionings of the fact that he's Jewish. Mm -hmm. There are scenes with religion involved in there's a grace scene. There's mentions of, you know, Jesus and carpentry like Mm -hmm. it's hard for me to believe that the religious aspect of this, you know, was not at somewhat of the forefront of kind of the filmmakers. So I I actually think that I'm going to give the movie, you know, even more credit. It's not just us reading into it, but Mm -hmm. I actually think there was a lot of Jewishness in which, you know, I hope to get to in detail, but obviously right now we're just going on a high level, but sure, that's
1: kind of what I'm excited to get into. I mean, I would even go so far as to say that like, even within the Jewish community, going into a synagogue or place of worship where the traditions are not your own, There's that certain sort of feeling of like, I've been to synagogues before where I'm wearing, you know, slacks and a blue shirt and everyone else is wearing a black jacket and white shirt and black hat. And I feel very outside and like, so I think it's a universal experience and I'm really excited to get into it. Um, Noah, I wanted to follow up. uh, First of all, uh, by the way, I want to just give a plug for Hanukkah. It's a very easy holiday to get into and there's eight nights of presents. So... I'm a big fan. Well, and the kids are a big fan. Win-win. So never
2: heard that. Never heard that argument before. Okay, I mean it's the classic Hanukkah <laughs>
1: argument. You know, it's eight times better. You didn't than even Christmas. mention the donuts and the latkes. But <laughs> well, I was getting to save that. that for our, uh, <laughs> yeah. our, uh, our juice on Food Pod. <laughs> yeah, I mean, then you you open up the whole argument like latkes, savory versus sweet. But we could save that for another time. Let's talk about the movie. Yeah, let's do it. I would guess or wavy wager that you potentially have seen this film like in either in the theaters or on VHS when it first came out. And i don't I wanna... think i
2: ever saw it in the theaters i did for I, I things the first time i saw it was on
1: dvd on dvd okay got it um and for those who are listening those are the round kind of shiny discy things um do you remember like how long ago when you saw it like was it um quite a, quite a bit different than watching it now like what was your experience then
2: yeah i think it was um the first time I remember seeing it, I walked. I was living with some friends in Boston. I was 20 years old or 21, and I walked into my room, which was the only room with the TV, and two of my friends were were watching it and they were annoyed uh, that I was talking because they were so into the movie. It was right at the very end, uh, which which pissed me off. But I thought, well, this movie must be really great if these guys were annoyed at my disruption of it. So I think I watched it shortly thereafter. And yeah, I think I connected to it really hard at the time. Um, I think at the time I sort of connected it to like, I was a, you know, a huge Seinfeld person growing up, obviously. Uh, and this film was released a week before the uh, first episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm as well. And I really think of both of these films, uh, that film and Curb as sort of the beginning of the cringe comedy era. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this movie is sort of the, to me, it's the ultimate cringe comedy film maybe along with like bridesmaids which i think owes actually quite a lot to to this film in terms of its tone and its its rhythms and its structure. So i think at the time i sort of associated them together but but even even to me at that time i don't think the jewishness was something that was really front of mind, you know. Greg is jewish, it's mentioned several times in the film, but i think the the theme of it is so universal. I mean being a 20-year-old awkward young adult I felt out of place pretty much everywhere anyway. Yeah. Uh, So I I think I just connected to it on that level and it wasn't until really years later until the Jewishness started to pop for me.
1: Right. Harry, could you give us a very quick IMDb summary and then I want to jump into the context corner uh, just for a little bit to talk about the film and its context.
0: Definitely. Uh, the movie is summer reads male nurse, Greg Fonker meets his girlfriend's parents before proposing, but her suspicious father is every date's worst nightmare.
1: Any gut reactions to this IMDb summary? Was it lacking? Was it sufficient?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that's the hook. That's the elevator pitch, okay. right? And it's been done several times since there've been other films that have sort of tried to use this, that hook, the discomfort, the awkwardness of meeting your future in-laws. Um, but yeah, I mean they they leave out all of the the Jewishness clearly and I I think that speaks to the my overarching point which is that you don't need the Jewishness for this movie to work but it right. becomes so much richer when it's yeah. when it's in there. Right.
0: I think it also, as I'm reading it, it, it very much represents how I thought about this film. You know, even when you suggested it for the podcast, I was like, is that a, like I'd never and I never kind of crossed mm-hmm. my path as a, as a kind of Jewish film. And it's very similar to an earlier episode we did on uh, Dirty Dancing, which oh, okay. like, has its very iconic moments, has its like. You know the story it's you know the 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 dad's boyfriend i mean it's it's similar right it's the daughter's boyfriend and the dad's not approving and it's like that and that's kind of how it lives in the cultural consciousness but i remember i told my dad that we were covering it for the podcast this was dirty dancing a while ago and he was like oh yeah that movie's so jewish it's at Uh one of these jewish Mm -hmm. you know retreats and of course and it's about this non-jewish boyfriend who's like you know dating his jewish daughter and i was like huh like it's 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 that layer that a lot of these movies sometimes kind of catch on because they're so universal. They're so just right. like, you know, anxious, anxiety, you know, dating, you know, whatever, just, just getting parents approval, I guess, would be <laughs> you know, how I would describe this story, right. but it's not just that the Jewishness has slipped in. Like, I think it is what rounds out the rest of the story. It's just not the main part of the story, right. if,
2: if what I'm saying makes sense. I think there's something to be said for both of those movies in that, you know, maybe you see them when you're young on the young side of life mm-hmm. and You know, they are also films about people who are young. I mean, I know Greg Fokker is not a kid in this movie, but he's also someone who's not 100% comfortable with who he is. You know, he's not very Mm self-assured. And I think when you're a young person, you see Dirty Dancing, you meet the Fokkers, you connect to those elements of it. You connect to the the rush of first love or the awkwardness of being around adults. You know, maybe that's sort of at at the heart of meeting parents in some way. Uh, And, you know, it takes it takes
1: time for that other stuff to
2: filter out, I think.
1: Right. It's also like worth yeah. noting the the awkwardness and, and this sort of universe has expanded, right? So there's like the sequel Meet the F- Parents, which is like with Dustin Hoffman and Barbra Streisand as Greg Focker's parents, and then there's Meet the F- what's the that the- one's Meet the Fockers. Meet the Fockers too. Oh, okay, got it. Meet the Fockers is it's not meet the parents. This is meet the parents, right? Yeah. Of course. But... I hope you watch the right movie for this episode. It's <laughs> yeah, going to be a very yeah. confusing discussion, <laughs> right? Exactly. If you and then there's the the one with the kids, which I haven't seen, so I don't know. That's Little Fockers. Little so. Fockers. I don't know to what extent things hold up in the Fockerverse, but um, you know, I, I know that uh, there's a lot of the original cast was still involved. Um, but let's hop into the context corner because I have lots to say. Uh, the film, you know, was directed by Jay Roach himself. Born not a Jew, but converted to Judaism later on in life after marrying Susanna Hoffs of the Bengals. Um, It was written, it was based on a film in 1992, uh, the same title, written by Greg Gliena and Mary Ruth Clark. Uh, So they wrote, those two people wrote the film, and then Greg starred in the movie as someone called Greg with a very similar plot. And I think Universal sort of bought the rights to the short film and then adapted it eight years later. But I think they have since sort of scrubbed the 1992 version from the internet, so it's like not around. Let's see, and then also John Hamburg and Jim Hertzfeld uh, were credited writers, but a lot of other folks had done like punch-ups on certain scenes of it. Um, In around the year 2000, um, it was a big year for Stiller. It was, um, you know, he had, in April, he had Keeping the Faith, which we covered earlier with uh, Phil Iscove, and then um, in October was Meet the Parents. And then De Niro, I kind of want to talk about him, in 19, nine, 1988, he had Midnight Run and King of Comedy in 83. So those are his comedy films. And then at this point, he had like a tough guy run where he was in, uh, 1990 was in Goodfellas and then 95 was Casino and Heat. He took a five year break and then Meet the Parents came out. So I think for, for the people who are watching this at your age, maybe Noah, I feel like, you know, they only knew De Niro as this sort of like tough guy maybe, or I don't know. Well, I think he, I
2: think Analyze This came out before this. Oh, did it? it really serves, like maybe okay. one. I think he made them around the same time, but ah. I think Analyze This came out before this. So this was the beginning of his like run in comedy, okay. and I think Analyze This and Meet the Parents is a pretty awesome
1: one-two oh, yeah. punch
2: for guy, like really moving into comedy sort of for the first time. It it tailed off quite a bit after that,
1: though. right? I just recently watched Midnight Run for the first time, which I understand has quite a big presence on 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 film Twitter and whatever. But it's it's a solid, solid bit of business. I enjoyed that quite a bit. I I agree. I love it. And then, uh, yeah, I think that's kind of it. You know, uh, Terry Polo's in this film, Blythe Danner, uh, Nicole DeHuff, uh, John Abrams, Owen Wilson, great as Kevin Raleigh and then James Rebhorn as Dr. Larry Banks. So that's sort of the rounding out the cast.
2: I would mention, I just pull out James Rebhorn for a second because I think it's like one of cinema's great wasps. He's like always, always plays a wasp in movies and he's just, I think of him as, I think he was the, Headmaster incentive of a woman at the prestigious boarding school. Okay, he just he slots right into that like middle aged rich wasp role so well.
0: Yeah, I, I didn't know him by name, Jebs Rebhorn, when, James Rebhorn, when you were saying him, but then mm-hmm. as soon as you said wasp, I'm like, I know exactly which what. <laughs> yeah. <this> is. just <laughs> confirmed it. Like yeah. yeah,
1: totally. I think he nailed that. And it's it's nice to see. I feel like either the year after or a couple years after Owen Wilson and Ben Stiller would reteam for Zoolander. Which was kind of like a great, uh, you know, rematch of this rivalry, um, and I feel like Owen Wilson is just like, like I think a lot of his lines were improvised. Um, you know, especially like that scene where he's like talking about his, in, in the woodshed and like you know in the kitchen. Now for the floor that you're walking on, I chose this Bolivian worm wood. I think
3: works well in here. I have the Viking range here and the twin sub Zs. Yeah, they open up right there. Oh, oh I like it, like hidden. Yeah, kind of That's blend cool. in.
1: Peak Owen Wilson, I think, Um, and uh, yeah. So I think that's about it for my context corner. Anything else to add before we kind of take a break and jump in?
2: No, I think the writers are Jewish, though. John Hamburg I know is, and I think Hertzfeld is as well. Yeah, That seems worth mentioning.
1: Yeah, definitely. So that's the context corner. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. Um, We'll get back into the film. We'll talk about some themes, and uh, yeah. All right, we'll be right back. Welcome back to Jews on Film. We are here with Noah Gattel talking about the film Meet the Parents. Harry, I'm going to toss it over to you. Sure. So I wanted to begin
0: our discussion of this movie by jumping into what I think is, you know, we've we've already touched it extensively, but what's really apparent what's going on in this movie is that as much as this is a, you know, fish out of water kind of story, a movie about, you know, an individual acclimating, assimilating, you might even add to a family culture society that is so at odds with his own. But I think we mentioned this, but it's... To me, it felt undeniable to say that this was about a Jewish character Mm -hmm. and his kind of acclimation into what we're referring to as, you know, wasp culture. I think, like I mentioned, there's a lot of explicit mentions of his uh, his Jewishness. Greg, would you like to say Grace?
3: Oh, uh, well, uh, Greg's Jewish, Dad. You know that. You're telling me? Jews don't pray, honey.
0: There are literal moments where he has to kind of coat himself. You know, Christian, there's this this moment where they ask him to say grace. You know, he kind of is forced to come up with something.
3: Pam, come on, it's not like I'm a (laughs) rabbi or something. I said grace at many a dinner table. You are such a good God to us, a, a kind and gentle and accommodating God. And we thank you, oh sweet, sweet lord of hosts, for the smorgasbord you have so aptly lain at our table this day and each day.
0: Like it's so kind of apparent there, so I wanted to hear what you think about this theme, how it plays out in the movie, what this movie is bringing to that perspective, and ultimately you know, how, where it kind of leaves him off. Is he successful when he, uh, you know, assimilates more or, you know, can he kind of stand his own? So I wanted to hear uh, everyone's thoughts on this theme and how it played out through the movie.
2: Well, I think the the grace scene is really uh, crucial because there's, I think there's a lot of things like this in this movie. I don't know if we're getting into stretch territory here, uh, but- We too early. Okay, good. Because there's a lot of them in this movie. I think there's so many things about this family that are- like fundamentally non-Jewish or, or registered as that to me, um, little references that to me go a long way to like filling out this picture of this world that is so unfamiliar to, to Greg. I mean, let, let's start with the cremation. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've got yeah. uh, this, this really horrifying moment where Greg uh, breaks the urn that Jack's mother's ashes are in. Now we know they're in there, but you know, historically, Jews don't cremate. I mean, I think that's something right there. There's a there's that, on the other side, like there's there's a mention that uh, Owen Wilson and uh, Terry Polo's ex fiance uh, or and and Terry Polo's brother met at Lacrosse camp, right. I mean yeah, that's yeah, like, yeah. How many Jews <sighs> go to Lacrosse camp? Like not a lot, I don't think. Um, there's also this sense that like, I mean, I'm starting to stretch a lot here, I think, um, that this family is profoundly uncultured. You know, like they write terrible poetry. He doesn't understand (laughs) metaphor and pop the magic dragon. Like, I know to to me, that's maybe that's a wasp stereotype or something. But, it, you know, to me, that that resonates as somebody who grew up in that in that uh, type of scenario. So I think there's these little clues kind of all along that this world that he is entering in is a full fledged wasp world. It's a stereotypical wasp world. But it's it's really well filled out, and and I don't know that he ever really assimilates to the world. I think maybe the film sort of loses that thread in the third act a little bit, and you know, the third act a lot of that was written by these script doctors that you mentioned, Daniel, mm-hmm. um, Alexander Payne and Jim Taylor, Whoa. who okay. are cool. writing partners, and Alexander Payne is of course a, a great director. Um, they came up with all the airport stuff, and ah, okay. which I think is I think is great um but you know i think when you get to that place you're really entering into sort of this observational comedy cringe comedy world that isn't particularly jewish so you know i not to not to accuse me of making a poor choice with this film but i do think it it doesn't stay consistent necessarily in the third act i think it loses the thread significantly so i'm not sure it resolves that question of like does he assimilate or does he not assimilate?
1: If I may, like, uh, I I would gently nudge back in that, like, I think, you know, so much of, again, my understanding of of a lot of the stereotypical wasp culture is that everything is kind of swept under the rug. We don't really talk about, you know, Jack's anger problems, or we don't talk about our son who has a pot problem or whatever. And I feel like, you know, sort of Greg sticking up for himself and being sort of that like stubborn... uh, We don't hide feelings. We express it. No, I'm going to make the bag fit. Just give me a second. Like, I got this like that to me seems like a very Jewish thing, like like not repressed emotions, like the emotions are on the sleeve. And so I don't know, I feel again uh, veering lightly into sort of stretchiness territory. I'm not sure that Alexander Payne had that in mind, but I feel like Greg is very, you know, in some ways he's dishonest. A lot of ways he's dishonest, but his feelings are true and we can kind of see where he's at. Um, when dealing with outsiders. So that to me, kind of read a little bit as Jewish. but yeah.
2: yeah, and dealing with, um, you know, suspicion too. right like right. you know, this the whole time he's being suspected of being something that he's not. Uh, with Jack, obviously, from the moment he walks in, Jack doesn't trust him. and and why is that? I mean, they say later on that Jack didn't trust any of her boyfriends right. in the beginning. I find it hard to believe that same level of mistrust was applied to Owen Wilson's character. It just doesn't ring true to me. And even when he gets on the plane, it's the same thing. Like he's suspected of being a terrorist, you know, which, you know, in a pre-9-11 world has a right. little bit of a different resonance sure. than it has today. But I think you're right that he he tries to meet those challenges with emotional authenticity, like mm-hmm. at every turn. Yeah. And yeah, so maybe there is something fundamentally Jewish about that.
1: And there was a throwaway line where I think either uh, Pam or Dina were saying something like she didn't he didn't like my boyfriends until they broke up until afterwards, like he only started liking Kevin uh, after we broke up.
0: I just also well, I'll say two things. First of all, in terms of the assimilation read, I really do. I I think that was a great point that you made, Daniel, also just about how kind of his emotional, you know, at the forefront kind of that that's his way of pushing back against. But. I also very much agree, uh, Noah, that the movie kind of loses a lot of what it was building in the third act in a number of ways. I mean, Jack's whole kind of resolution at the end by the time he's back on. You know, he's like, it takes one time, like seeing his daughter, you know, kind of get emotional, which like she'd been the whole time and I'm not really sure what happens there. I I do think there is something, you know, going on with the assimilation. One of the moments that I highlighted when I watched the movie was that, the, the time the family embraces him the most is when he like, you know, he said from the beginning, I'm a dog guy. I'm not a cat person. And when he does, you know, his schema ultimately to, you know, find the cat, all of a sudden it's like, okay, you get it. You're in on the cat. You're doing what we're doing. Like you are in line with us and they celebrate him and they like completely forget oh, right, everything right, right, right. that happened. Like, and I think that's kind of the tease and the movie ultimately promotes, you know, the assimilation is as not being kind of that best path for themselves. Mm-hmm. But I think it's really interesting that a toy's there. And I also, the the second point I just wanted to mention was that it kind of colors what you were saying in the beginning about, you know, specifically that gray scene or or when you were talking about the urn with the ashes. And what's really interesting about the kind of dynamic between Jack, like you could argue, yes, he was overly critical. And you might even say that, you know, if we're going to read this kind of Jewish lens, the moment he walked in and he had, you know, brown curly hair instead of blonde hair, like that was already But like, but the uh, urn, when he, you know, knocks it over or when he points out to it, when he's complimenting it, he doesn't even know what it is like it's right, less right. That there's like right. it's less that these characters are at odds because of something more so than they live in these very kind of insular communities you know, specifically this wasp community where they're like how do you not know what that is that mm-hmm. is our world right I mean right. that that is like the definition of a kind of very you know kind of tight community and why someone might have to assimilate not because they necessarily hate you although ultimately we know from history it tends to lead to hate when people are different but it starts with just this is like this is reality. This is true. That's where all of our dead go. Of course, that's what that is. Everyone around the table's like, um, that's obviously an urn. And he goes on right. for 10 minutes complimenting. Right. Just, like it comes from this real ignorance kind of on both sides that, you know, opens it and then it kind of evolves. But, but that, that really is kind of where some of this, you know, culture clash is really stemming from more so than any preconceived ideas necessarily at the surface.
2: I think that's true. I think these characters, don't always know when they're insulting him like that's one of the threads that runs through the movie the line that i always that always makes me cringe is when he meets uh owen wilson
3: so what got you into uh carpentry carpentry i guess i'd have to say jesus he was a carpenter and i just figured if you're gonna follow in someone's footsteps who better than christ Hmm. greg's jewish are you? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, so was JC. Wow. You're in good company. <laughs> yeah.
2: Like, okay. I actually don't think he's being shitty there. I think he's sure. trying to connect with sure, him. Yeah. And yeah. if you've ever spent a significant amount of time with evangelicals, which I have actually, that will happen to you. It will, uh-huh. Somebody will say that to you at some point and say, you know, you and Jesus are the same uh, and we love you because you're Jewish. And they have no idea how condescending and patronizing yeah. and insulting that actually is. So I think that's a great example of how, as you say, these characters are not necessarily just being assholes to him or being flat out anti-Semitic. It's really just there's a there is a profound lack of understanding of the other's experience at the heart of
1: this. Do you think that goes so far as to extend to like um, Greg's, you know, Greg's station in life is that he is a he's a New York uh, nurse and he rents an apartment. But like I feel like the 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 nurse and doctor gets a good amount of mileage uh between uh Dr. Larry and like Jack also has quite an issue with it. Um and I and I read somewhere that like this is a not historic, but it's a notable performance of like male nurses and how much Greg kind of like sticks up for himself. But may, do you, do you think that sort of the perception that Dr. Larry has is that, oh, you couldn't cut it as a as a doctor. So you're settling for a nurse like do you, in terms of your read, Harry, of like the misunderstanding or is it or is that maybe a different thing altogether?
0: I I think it does represent this elitism
1: that's coming from them like yeah. that, you
0: know, and, and that honestly has overlaps in, you know, kind of some Jewish stereotypes about, you know, doctor, lawyer kind of thing like these are the professions and all mm-hmm. of a sudden, you know, when he comes up as a nurse, like Again, I think they just can't wrap their heads around why anyone would do that if not. And especially when they kind of double down and say, you know, he actually took the MCAT. He really could have. He he legitimately like in, you know, today's kind of parlance, it would be he he preferred the work life balance over, you know, the kind of the grind, as it were. And like, again, it's just so challenging for them to wrap their head around it. You know, the judgment is not necessarily coming from this place of, oh, this this guy doesn't, you know, work hard. Like, as, as you know, Ben Stiller's character is kind of explaining himself, like, it's just falling on deaf ears. Like, they cannot comprehend right. how you could have made that decision. That's right.
2: one of the saddest moments of the movie, actually, is when he starts to explain why he wanted to be a nurse. And you can see his face really lights up. Like, he has some genuine passion for this profession. And they're not interested, you know? Like, that's what really... Right. It speaks to your point, Harry. I think it's like, yeah, there is a culture clash here, but they're also not interested really in getting beyond it because there's so many of them and there's one of him and they don't have to. And, um, you know, that's that's a sad thing. But I think it's fundamental to to the film and, and to our experience as well.
0: I know. I'll even just point out, you know, myself the way that I even just described it, you know, as like the hardworking, you know, the like that's not even what it is. Like you, you actually you caught me because I mm-hmm. think I was making that same mistake of saying, oh yeah, the nurse is like he wanted work life. Like no, he he had a very clear reason. He wanted to be you know exposed to all these different fields in the hospital, and he wanted to not deal with kind of the. You know, whatever the uh, I forget what they call it the more like technical, uh, you know, programming stuff that goes on oh. in the hospital. Like, he just he really wanted to be with the patients and that direct like,
1: patient care that's what he was saying. Yeah, right? yeah,
0: exactly. And that is like just as admirable. And it's like, a, you know, whatever, it's something that they just cannot understand
2: let alone the idea which is probably true that nurses work harder than doctors most of the time the
0: best bit i always hear is that you know i have like friends who are you know nurses or med school and they talk about how they'll get to the hospital and they'll and like someone will say like oh i want the doctor to administer like this shot to me and it's like the doctor has done that three times in their career like as a nurse i did that 40 times this morning already like but sure (laughs) if you want the doctor to do it like by all means
1: yeah shout out to Yafa, who's a my wife Yaffa is a hospice nurse and so she used to do patient care a lot in New York City and then we moved out here to Seattle and she's you know sort of yeah. f- removed from patient care but she she often says that she misses a lot of that and she does like more administrative stuff and whatever but uh I can totally see the sort of desired it like you see at the beginning of the film how good greg is with the patient he's like putting in the catheter and he's like practicing his engagement speech and like the patient and him are like have such a good rapport that i don't we don't we don't have that sort of like warm connection uh really with anyone except pam's character you know for his fiance or not yet fiance but fiance to be pam like the only thing the only person he really gets along with is pam beside the patient yeah so he's good at it yeah
2: But I do think, you know, that that is there is a Jewish wasp divide there. But one of the things that makes this movie so universal is that that divide could be read in so many different ways. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, it could be read as an urban suburban divide. Like he is he's in a city. He's surrounded by people. He's more of a of a listener, more empathetic. Sure. Um, It's a generational divide. Right. With Greg being more gender progressive. I mean, he sees no shame in being a man and a nurse, whereas Jack is stuck in this post-war masculinity, where you have to ask him for his daughter's hand in marriage before right. you ask her. So for me, the Jew-Gentile divide is the strongest, but I think it's very easy to read pretty much any of these scenarios as
1: as belonging to one of those other divides. 100%. Yeah, they are diametrically opposed on everything, like the type of car they drive, cats versus dogs, yeah, that's uh, right. <laughs> all sorts of things. Do you feel like, just this is just a hypothetical here, do you feel like the... The, that grace scene would have been um, improved or kind of not at if, if Greg actually said some sort of like, like a blessing, like a bracha, like a Hebrew blessing over the rather than like take it like to the next level where he's like improvising with a song from Godspell.
3: Day by day by day Oh dear Lord three things we pray to love thee more dearly To see thee more clearly, to follow thee more nearly, day by
1: day, by day. Amen. Amen. Do you feel like it would have been serviced in any way, shape, or form by him doing some sort of like hilarious take on a Jewish blessing?
2: Way too aggressive, man. That's yeah. like Marty Von Kouser wearing the yarmulke into
0: the Palestinian chicken restaurant in
1: Curve. Too much, too much. <laughs> okay. Too much too soon. Okay.
0: All right. And I'll, I'll even, I'll flirt with stretch territory and say, okay. you know, Godspell, he's taking a Broadway show and he's bringing ah. it into this grace, you know, there's a little bit of Jewish roots there. Like
1: maybe that's what he was doing. Maybe okay. he was
0: bringing his Jewishness
1: into the grace. So. Did you hear it playing at the pharmacy? <laughs> It was yep. so that's that was before right or after that was before that no, was it was before, before. it was the scene that's... before I guess right. the idea is that he
0: heard it and it was yeah. in his head
1: I uh, I didn't hear that though I I did read that afterwards but and and Godspell is it's a show about Jesus
0: I don't know <laughs> I feel like we should know <laughs> could do some quick research yeah, yeah. it's probably on, a
1: reason we don't know yeah it's a musicals composed by da 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 let's see it's based on Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew, interspersed with music mostly set to lyrics from traditional hymns, with the Passion of Christ appearing briefly near at the end. Okay. The only other
2: place I've heard that song is at the end of Wet Hot
1: American Summer. There you Summer, go. Boom.
2: You got it. A profoundly Jewish film.
1: Day by day, they pronounce it in that, <laughs> that one. Um, but written in and and with lyrics by Stephen Schwartz, uh, which is kind of interesting. Mm. So maybe maybe Greg knew that, but uh, Harry, I wanted to talk. I want to be honest with you. Okay. Let's talk about honesty shall we um Let's do it. honesty and the lack of honesty in this film i feel like you know it pervades everything and a lot of people in this film and i kind of wanted to to see to get some thoughts about you know greg's honesty and jack's honesty or lack thereof and sort of how that that factors into the film in the circle of trust and the circle of trust i mean the moment greg arrives he's at this sort of path in the forest right like jack says you got a Taurus and did you pick the car color and I feel like that's the first I could be wrong but I feel like that's sort of the first he decides how he's going to go right because he's about to propose to Pam at the beginning of the movie Pam's sister calls and says I just got engaged he asked dad first and he said yes so so that from that point on Greg's like okay I need to go visit dad I got to get his permission and so he is I, I I Pam kind of undersells it quite a bit but how how much of a challenge Jack is going to be. But I think Greg is very anxious. And, you know, Jack says, what color is your car? He decides to say, I think he's honest, right? He says that the guy picked it. He said, oh, because you would have been a genius had you picked it, whatever. So at that point, he's honest. So he takes the honesty route. But then as we sort of progress, he really wants to impress Jack and the family. And through a series of unfortunate choices, he ends up ending in this place where he's kind of, all over the place with his lies
0: i i think he as a character is coming off mostly honest from the beginning mm-hmm. uh he being uh ben stiller's character greg yeah uh, greg yeah i was gonna say his i was actually gonna say the name he lies about which is the one thing that he uh he actually yeah. is lying out throughout and we could talk about that sure. but before i get there i think a lot of the lying he learns from jack's character like he's kind of lying throughout the whole kind of CIA thing, the whole, you know, but like from the beginning, it's almost in every sequence he's do, you know, even planning this trip, which we ultimately learn, you know, the operation Koi Samoy, whatever it is, yeah. is, you know, he's planning this trip. I mean, everything is so secretive and he he represents himself. It's, it's a little two faced where he's like this, you know, beacon of honesty, circle of trust. I'm going to literally put you in a you know, lie detector because I want to siphon the truth out of you. But the entire time he's been kind of the shadiest, the two-faced identity. And what's interesting, you know, I guess pulling this into everything we've been talking about about, you know, the assimilation, like, I think Greg learns to lie from them. I think he mm. goes in. I'm gonna represent myself. I want your parents to like me for who I am. When that doesn't work for the first hour of uh what's going on in the film, that's when he comes up with the lie for the cat. You know, that is and that is the first time that they embrace him. And ultimately when the truth comes out with the cat, you know, they are uh Understandably, they they kind of turn on him. But for a brief moment there, the lying is the only thing that gets him in the good graces of this family. So, I I think that they clearly, I, I think the lying clearly, even though it feels like it's going both ways, to me it comes from the kind of family the the uh, the family is representing that. But um, but I but I think Greg goes on a journey, learning and then ultimately unburdening himself from lying. It's
2: it's a family built on lies
0: really Mm -hmm. right because there's this lie they tell everyone
2: about what jack does for a living and right when they arrive at the house uh before they even meet jack she says oh by the way we don't live together and you don't smoke right oh yeah, yeah yeah she throws this at him right before he enters this world and the fact that he's able to maintain any sense of authenticity after that is actually incredible. Like, I totally agree with you. I guess he does lie earlier when he talks about milking the cat. <laughs> right. Although, that, again, it's cat related. So it's sure. only about cats that he will lie. And it lie. feels
0: like it's it's protecting himself. Like, anytime he comes up with a lie, it's because whatever he said first isn't working. So he's like, how can I dig myself out of this? Right. Absolutely.
2: He- and, and can I say there's something very Jewish there because he is protecting himself against in a way, the federal government. I mean, we have this guy who represents the CIA. Now, if it were the FBI, it would be a little more on the nose. You know, we'd be thinking more about communism and the Red Scare. Oh, okay, okay. But I felt very much like he was sort of a representative of the federal government. So this wasn't just a father. I mean, this was, you know, uh, this was Jews trying to survive in America in so many ways to me. And um, he's put in a position where he has to be secretive a little bit.
0: And I think that goes all the way back to his name. You know, there's that great reveal by the end of the movie that his name is not Greg Fokker, it's Gaylord Focker. And it's when he kind of, when it's outed, because, you know, there's someone delivering his suitcase from that, that was kind of lost on the plane. He says, oh, I'm looking for a Gaylord Fokker. And when, it, when he's outed, you understand why he hit it because immediately the family starts laughing at him like right away. And there are definite Jewish parallels to people, you know, taking on Americanized names. Oh, and he told OK. The story. Very good. Literally. I know there's a lot of stretches coming out. But no, you literally mentioned it at the top. You know, people like uh you, you mentioned that your father would, was calling himself, you know, A, because he didn't exactly. want that Abraham to be, you know, exposed to the world. So I think the lying and, you know, obviously. I think the movie is sympathetic to Greg, but I think we're being sympathetic to Greg, but his lying feels almost like protecting himself. I think you can give that generous read to the other side. In some ways, they're trying to protect their values, but ultimately, I think the movie pushes towards, you know, unburdening everyone's self of that and embrace, like, instead of lying about who you are, to right, if this is a movie about how can you impress your in-laws, the answer is don't lie about who you are to impress them. That's not going to work. You know, wait till they kind of join you and meet you for who you are. Right.
2: Yeah, and it is, it is uh, unbalanced from the beginning, right? Because the, f- the the Burns family's lies are considered acceptable mm-hmm. uh, and his lies are unacceptable. Totally. And you see all that in the lie detector scene. I mean, they literally put him into a polygraph test and it's not reversed. Like Jack doesn't have to tell the truth. Only Greg has to tell
1: the truth. Right. Yeah, like yeah. the son is lying, Danny. Yeah, he, you know, he smokes pot. Don't tell my dad. When the son is caught, he immediately tells his father, "Oh, that's not mine. That must be Greg's.
0: He was wearing my coat, and he's believed. You know, that's it. Yeah, that's they move it.
1: forward. Stico. Well, he's in the circle of trust. Uh, you know, so I think he, Danny, sort of Stico. gets. Yeah, it's oh yeah. I, there's there's a lot there's a lot to unpack here. I feel like uh, you know, I know you know. I feel like in the 2000s, I think uh, this is probably correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like this is probably one of the last you know, gay joke in in mainstream culture sort of like there was just a whole bunch of them in the like 80s, 90s and 2000s. And I feel like, you know, thankfully, that kind of stuff is 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 not in film anymore. But I feel like this is kind of it. Yeah, it 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 was all right. Like it didn't age very well. Like I'm like, okay, like that's just someone's name, whatever. But uh, I do love the reads. I. I kind of want to go like even further back and be like Inquisition Crypto Jew. That was sort of the re, you know, very stretchy, obviously, but I, I like your sort of more direct parallel to like Jack being the government. Um, I like that a lot. It's really good. Does, does, Dina, does Dina lie at all? Do we know? I know Pam forces Greg to lie, you know, for, mm-hmm. um, but do we know of anyone else besides Denny? I just want to say, I have a lot of questions about Pam like about him okay sure
2: yeah she okay so she throws him into the situation totally ill equipped to handle it Mm -hmm. she also doesn't mention that her ex-fiance first of all she doesn't mention that they were engaged then she doesn't mention that he's the best man in the wedding right i kind of it kind of feels like she's setting him up to fail in a lot of ways here which is
1: unexamined in the film there's a lot and then like you see like the pictures of kevin and her still up in everyone's house um it sort of seems like yeah. a natural conclusion that Kevin and Pam are going to get back together but it never seems to transpire. It almost it
0: almost leads me to think that maybe Jordan Peele had kind of watched this movie before <laughs> scripting Get Out. Yeah. Get Out is that story where uh-huh. and it's the same thing. He right. discovers the pictures of all the past boyfriends and uh-huh. all of a sudden it's, you know, maybe there is something shady going on and, and it kind great. of takes it to that
1: extreme. Yeah. I mean it I love that. What does Pam say that that she sort of her and Kevin were mostly like physical, but I'd like to posit that like her and Greg are like maybe more like, um, you know, emotionally connected and uh, cerebral. Right. I feel like that's like a Jewishness. We don't see so much of Greg's like cerebral characteristics or like, you know, we mentioned before that he's like emotional and connected, whereas Kevin is sort of um, sort of materialistic and seen as vapid. I don't know maybe nowadays you'd call him like a tech bro he gets early in on like ipos of wireless technology he seems fairly douchey and aloof um and yeah i don't know yeah
0: i think greg fits that in definitely in like the talky way you mm-hmm. know thinking back to that scene we've discussed a few times now with the uh, urn where right everyone's faces drops when he starts talking about it and if i recall correctly he goes on for a minute and a half talking about how the vase is so nice and right. you know it's it's you keep kind of talking getting himself in trouble. He can't talk, you know, he can't get out of his own way kind of thing. And I think that fits,
1: you know, the uh, some the, the stereotype in the way that you're describing it. You're just talking about this, uh, this cremation, you know, extended cremation, kind of like how long are you going to let it go on? Um, and that sort of awkwardness that we feel, I feel like tonally is very similar to a lot of other films uh, that we have and have not covered, you know, so- something that comes to mind is sort of that, specifically like, you know, a couple of scenes like in Annie Hall, where grandma looks at Woody Allen's character and she sees him kind of like as a Hasidic guy, him sort of feeling out of place. And then also the heartbreak kid, you know, specifically, I'm thinking of that shot at the wedding where Charles Grodin's character, uh, is sitting there with his kippa on and everyone's just kind of chatting over him and he's just very much out of place. Uh, and then also, you know, things like the graduate as well is sort of like a fish out of water, a Jew among non-Jews. Um, those are all older films, but I feel like maybe, you know, that uh, this film is sort of harkening back to those or kind of summoning up those same uh, feelings. I think so very
2: much. Uh, Heartbreak Kid and Annie Hall. In both of those, it's to, it's the dinner scenes that stick out. Yeah. Right. So in Annie Hall, he goes back to Annie's family, and there's a the dinner scene where the the grandmother looks over and sees him. You know, just like an orthodox. Uh, and then in, in Heartbreak Kid, it's the, it's the, what, I don't remember exactly what he says, but he's talking about the potatoes. There's honesty in these potatoes, potatoes (laughs) or something. He's trying to fit in and just flailing badly. And of course, Meet the Parents has the dinner scene as well, which we were just talking about, but it it really feels like the whole movie is sort of built out of those two scenes. Like they saw those scenes and like, you know what, we could do more with this. Let's build a whole movie about a Jew going home to meet his Shiksa wife's family. Right. And, but I also think, you know, some of Ben Stiller's prior work sort of leads to this movie. I mean, if you look at, there's something about Mary, for example. Mm -hmm. I mean, there he is with this beautiful blonde Gentile woman Mm -hmm. in the film. And I think, I don't know that the comedy is particularly Jewish in that movie. I'd have to think about it more, but I certainly think there's this fundamental, like, um, his attraction to her as this perfect woman is certainly like, you know, um, emblematic of the the Shiksa dynamic. Uh, and I even uh, flirting with disaster, which is one of my favorite uh, Ben Stiller movies. I don't know if you guys have seen that one. I got to see it. It's a blind spot. It's great. Uh, so he plays uh, a guy, a New Yorker who's married to uh, Patricia Arquette and they have a kid and he uh, he decides to Go on this journey to meet his real parents. He was adopted. His parents are George Siegel and Mary Tyler Moore. His adopted Ooh.
1: parents. Okay.
2: But he goes. He goes to try to meet all these um, these people who he thinks might be his real parents, and they keep getting it wrong. So he has to go to several different sets of parents. Nice. Um, but you know, one of them is uh, in the South, and it's this uh, you know, middle-aged Southern woman. I can't remember the actress's name, but you've seen her in a lot of stuff, and. She has these two other two children, these tall, blonde, beautiful, uh, like surfers women, uh, and him thinking these. This is his real family, and really trying to connect with them, trying to imagine how he somehow came out of this world. That's very similar to a lot of the humor we're seeing in Meet the Parents. So I feel like Ben Stiller really had this whole idea on lockdown in like the late '90s and early 2000s, where. He is a Jewish person trying to assimilate into a, a non-Jewish world. There's numerous examples of it.
0: I'm really, I'm really happy you brought all that up because it actually leads me into a, a question that I wanted to put forth to you. That I was thinking about when I was watching this movie because there are plenty of movies that we've covered, and especially ones that are, I would call, you know, 80s, 90s, 2000s, you know, New York Jews in particular, where there are actors that even though the movie doesn't have to be explicitly Jewish and I think we've made the case that this one does have a lot of that but Ben Stiller is one of those at least in that era where by virtue of them being in the movie they kind of they carry this you know Jewish codedness that we've discussed definitely they they have this like Jewish presence and it kind of it colors and it's also their personas you know Billy Crystal comes to mind we've covered you know a bunch of his movies and I was thinking about you know what have I seen a movie in the last, you know, 10 years or today? Like, are there actors that exist right now, you know, Jew- young Jewish actors that mm-hmm. carry that exact, that that similar really? weight where even if their movie is not inherently about Jewishness, by virtue of them being in it, by virtue of their face showing up, kind of what they bring to their roles, you know, can you kind of extract that? And I did a little brief research so okay. much that I, to the point that I, well, to the point that I Googled young Jewish actors, <laughs> this all happened about me five minutes ago okay <laughs> and i'm like scrolling through the names and like there's some who show up you know i see ben platt showed up he just did yep. that theater camp movie yep. brought a lot of you know his totally. jewishness to it there's you know there's there's some surprising names that that show that are jewish chalamet i learned was jewish i saw you know eisenberg jesse eisenberg i actually think he brings a little oh, bit of yeah, that to absolutely that yeah, you know, garfield i'm looking at oh yeah exactly and, and a lot of these movies a lot of these actors that we're mentioning also produce you know movies and and shows that have that Jewishness in it because that obviously goes hand in hand but but who do we have nowadays that kind of brings that presence and I know I didn't give you any prep time but I just wanted to hear if there's anyone that comes to mind that well I want to linger on
2: Chalamet for a minute because I think Chalamet is a really interesting example I didn't know he was Jewish either until I started looking into it but then I started thinking call me by your name is a Jewish movie is it? Uh, in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah, for sure. His father's Michael Stol- Stolberg. Okay. and uh, yeah. Who definitely yeah, I, carries that. I think they're they explicitly Jewish in that movie. Okay. I can't remember exactly, but I'm pretty sure. He's also playing Bob Dylan uh, next year in a Dylan biopic. Wow,
1: okay.
2: And he, he just is stepping into the shoes of Gene Wilder, uh, right. in a way, in this Wonka sure. movie. Right, right. So I feel like he's kind of leaning into that, although it's not really widely understood about him, but I, I think it's leaning in. In fact, if you do Google... Uh, Cool Jew, uh, Chalamet's name will come up. There was an okay. article about him okay. as a cool. I think in Salon. Um, I think Eisenberg is a fantastic example. He yeah. definitely brings that. Um, but I think you also these guys aren't really young anymore. But the Apatow crowd. I mean, Seth Rogen and Jonah Hill. Like, right.
0: That that I think is the yeah. last era where if Seth Rogen was showing up in a movie, like no matter what it was, you know, he mm-hmm. had that same Barbara Streisand effect where it's
1: like there's there's something Jewish about that. It's not going to be such a reach. What about? I mean kind of in between like we're let's go up from rogan one generation we're talking about the sandman adam sandler like i feel like a lot of his stuff you know late i mean he has things like uncut gems which is much much later in his career but we have eight crazy nights but there's like all you know all of his movies i'm sure if i I haven't seen them a lot in a long time like you know happy gilmore and um the water boy and things like that are are there aspects of the films that that sort of bring out his Jewishness I don't know I feel like another person worth mentioning um is Benny Safty you know he's in that the it's new great the, one. The curse great one uh he was in good time and like Nathan Fielder that whole crew I feel like Fielder isn't is both as an actor and a creator um add that sort of Jewish sensibility but that's a really great question I it makes me want to like think about it more and yeah. Like and a...
0: I'm like, as I'm going through the list, like yeah. oh Natasha Leone, like I actually oh, see a lot sure. of that in, in her for performances. Sure. You know, we she's sure. come up on the pod, like Beanie Feldstein, we spoke about that when we did Book Smart, like, yeah. and she's Jonah Hill's sister. They have that kind of relationship, and Jonah right. Hill is similarly, right. I think, in that in that boat. But yeah, it's just interesting. I'm I'm trying to think, like, I don't know how many movies right mm-hmm. now we're talking about the stars, obviously, but how many movies, TV shows, whatever you want to call. Uh, that have come out in the last 10 years have given that kind of sense of like, well, this is a Jewish story, even if, you know, they're not going to name the characters, you know, right. the Coens or, or whatever.
2: Right. I'll tell you who doesn't bring any Jewishness to their movies is Zac Efron. Tell us.
0: <laughs> oh, Zac that's Efron. a surprise. Yeah, know
2: he, he was Jewish. He is Jewish, but um, maybe a little bit in his connection with Seth Rogen in the Neighbors movies, like okay. the fact that they have a rapport kind of indicates something. But yeah. I, I would never have guessed he was Jewish if I didn't know. Interesting. Him.
1: I feel like you know uh, Eisenberg, like I, especially with with uh, shows and and things like you know Fleischman is in trouble, and then all these movies that he did where he was like an action star, but which sort of like subverts this like schmuck or or just like not schmuck, but like this sort of nebbishy kind of guy, like you know being this action star. He was in that MK Ultra movie, and then he was in yep. the Zombieland movie. Him sort of just being this mild mannered, curly haired, skinny person who actually like saves the day I feel like is a very Jewish trope um
2: yeah I think you could argue there's also like part of his character uh is is to overcompensate you know in some way for snibbishness you know social network being sort of a prime example of that
1: I do need to rewatch that I I was listening a lot to the blank check podcast has just done a whole like Fincher series and listening to some of the films made me want to re-watch. So one of them is Social Network. I definitely want to re-watch that one because, you know, I've heard that's uh, – it's been a while since I watched it. And I feel like it's uh, – there's a lot of movies now that are revisiting – history which is not so i guess maybe it's a long time ago but it doesn't seem that long ago like they already had a movie about the GameStop thing and that was like a year or two ago sorry we're way off track i apologize yeah i'll I'll (laughs) wrap
0: up this this kind of question i appreciate
1: all your answers and just mention
0: you know this all is kind of in times with the way that the industry has evolved and the way that Mm -hmm. representation and i think that that kind of character that was the lead in all of these rom-coms you know from the woody allen era kind of through you know was very much this you know and and even like in the jewish world right we've spoken about about, you know, Ashkenormativity a bunch and kind of what that yep. looks like. And mm-hmm. especially as we're calling this the New York Jew, you know, though a lot of Jews live in New York and still live in New York, obviously not all do. And a lot of these actors that I'm looking at, you know, that were are surprised that Jewish are bringing in, you know, uh, a more diverse array of kind of what it looks like to be a Jew nowadays. But it is just interesting to think of where, you know, if, if characters, if actors are still bringing that, you know, obviously we're looking through a Jewish lens. I wonder, you know, if religion is kind of or re- religious culture because obviously that's kind of more the Jewishness I think we're looking at right. if that You know, still exists in the performances on the roles, you know, of movies nowadays, or as, you know, the world and we're really going off the rails here, but as people talk about how the industry has kind of lost, you know, movie stars in favor of just movies, like a lot of the superhero stuff is you're not watching, you know, Robert Downey Jr., you're watching the character Tony Stark. So it doesn't even matter what they bring. Like that could be part of it. That could be maybe the rom coms nowadays are more about. The plotting in the settings more so than you know a character kind of showcasing you know in that apatow style the very ad libby like i'm just gonna bring i'm just gonna be billy crystal in a movie as opposed to you know this movie so maybe that's part of why we don't see it as much but right. uh just an observation i wanted to you know talk through well i just want to agree with you that i,
2: I think um yes we don't have movie stars as much anymore the character at, movie stars are not encouraged to develop personas in the same way that they once were because then it limits where they can fit. And and, and one of yeah. the goals of being a, a movie star these days is to fit into whatever franchise they need you to be in. Um, but I will say, you brought up Robert Downey Jr. I want to point out, half Jewish, half Jewish yep, actor, nice. yep. who has embraced his Jewishness uh, since he, I think, married a Jewish woman. He he's sees himself as more Jewish. Right. And the next Superman is Jewish as well, oh. while we're on the subject of superheroes. Nice. David Koren Sweat, I believe his name is. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but that's a huge, huge deal. I know we're getting way off topic here, but if I can't talk about it here, where can I talk about it? Uh, Please, he, to have that character who was written, conceived by Jewish immigrants, as sort of a, you know, as everything they were not in many ways, uh, while also being immig- an immigrant. Finally, for the I think for the first time, played by a Jewish actor seems like a really big deal and and worth noting.
0: The great irony of that is that Lois Lane in that movie is going to be played by Rachel Brosnahan, who is probably the most famous instance of a non-Jewish person playing probably the most famous Jewish role of the last ten years, you know for sure uh, in Midge Maisel. So it's just ironic that whole situation. Um, It speaks to the issue that
2: women, Jewish women, have that is different than Jewish men in Hollywood, right? I mean, Sarah Silverman has spoken about this forever, and 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 thank, thank goodness she's done that. Because you have a Jewish Superman, you have a, a Lois Lane played by a non-Jew who's famous for playing a Jew. And what's the sidekick's name? Jimmy um, Olsen. Jimmy, Jimmy Olsen, Olsen. Yeah. also now played by a Jew. Skylar Gazondo is playing yeah. Jimmy Olsen. So it's like a sandwich. It's like a Jewish man with a non-Jewish woman sandwich. And I think that perfectly exemplifies the the challenges
1: and the opportunities for men and women, Jewish men and women. And then when a Jewish woman does portray a superhero, everyone makes fun of her Israeli accent. So you can't <laughs> win. Sure. Honestly, it sucks. That's right. Uh, what I wanted to add, Harry, I don't know, you were talking about the death of movie stars ages ago. Yes, I was. But yes. I also, I think you, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you talked about like religious practice on screen and, mm-hmm. and maybe the sort of death and of that or like how that's
0: not exactly.
1: I feel like in general, and this is not a stretch by any means that like in general, like just newer generations are not as involved religiously. And so that's just like not as people identify as as Jewish and culturally. Jewish. I do the bagels, I watch the Woody Allen movies or maybe not so much anymore, but whatever, you know, I watch the, the culturally Jewish things. I partake in the cultural stuff, but the practice is antiquated. That's for my parents to do and whatever. Um, so I wonder if we, we will get more you know, in in the future of with these chalamets and these Rogans and whoever else we we talked about, like if we will see sort of more authentic depictions that have like, you know, Jewish culture infused as part of the fabric of it and not have it just be like either they're gonna be like happen to be religious and they mention it at the grace table, or it's gonna be you know black hats and pay us and everything. But I'm I'm sure there's there's this sort of like gray zone where a lot of us occupy you know there's a modern orthodox component i i count myself as a member of that and harry as well like there is there's a lot to be mined from that experience that i don't think we see right now but hopefully we will i don't know
2: i think it's hard um it's hard for me to imagine seeing that in like a big budget mainstream movie because mm-hmm. hollywood has been it was conceived and acted you know so early on as like we're we're not going to show this stuff. We're going right. to we're going to be this, but we're not going to show it because we don't want to draw attention to to who we are. And I don't when I think about the Jewish actors of the 60s and the 70s, which was really a true renaissance for Jewish representation oh, yeah. uh, on screen between Streisand and Elliot Gould and George Segal and Woody Allen, Richard Benjamin, I mean just incredible, a uh, golden age. Yeah. Uh, we do you feel like those films were imbued with the religious component of Jewishness because to me it feels not that different than what we have today where it's culturally mm. Jewish but not that religiously Jewish
1: there's certain examples like um, I feel like uh, I was watching um, with Richard Dreyfuss the pre- apprenticeship of Duddy Kravitz it had like aspects of Jewish culture, like the the Borscht Belt, like the hotel that he worked at. And you had like old Jewish men there. But yeah, you're right. There was no like lighting of Shabbat candles like what we saw, like in Fiddler, where people are like having Shabbat dinner. And we did licorice pizza with the Heim sisters, you know, and they're singing Shabbat. And like that's like not a Jewish. Mo- I mean, we made the case that it was a Jewish movie, but like that can be seamlessly woven in. And then that's just like a part of what they do. And then we move on. The Fablemans as well, right?
2: Sure. sure. Yeah.
1: So I'm, I'm happy I was about to point that movie out Both yeah. those movies,
0: really, because, you know, no, you were saying that they were so kind of religiously and, you know, in, like communally Jewish back then, but that wasn't what they were going to put in their movies. And I would argue it's it's become completely inverse than that. Like, I they, think nowadays, like you're saying, Daniel, there's there's, you know, statistics on kind of the record, you know, practice kind of going down. But at the same time, I think we've spoken about how movies nowadays are in there are plenty of examples where instead of going very broad in general have leaned into the specifics. You know, I'm mm-hmm. thinking of like that right. show Rami yeah, that wouldn't have 100%. existed, which is which is not a Jewish story, but it, it is like a very particular religious oh, yeah. story that like and I think you're getting examples of that throughout. And I think what you mentioned, you know, the Fable kind of spending that time on that scene, like I actually think movies have gotten to a place where we're gonna tell everyone's vantage point and let people get as personal and particular as they want in them. Even if that hasn't been, you know, that's not going to be what the movie's about and that's not going to be necessarily reflected, you know, more broadly. But I do think you are seeing a little bit more, you know, uh, like practice kind of woven into a lot of these movies nowadays, even as some of those other rates go down as more of like a personal, like this is, sure. I'm showing you my childhood. I'm giving yeah. you my, my story. It's, it's interesting.
2: You know, you would say maybe well, it takes a director like Spielberg to to do that. Um, right. but Paul Thomas Anderson is not Jewish, although he no. clearly seems interested in Jewish yeah, culture. To Rudolph, who is yeah. Jew? Exactly. Exactly. But Spielberg, I just want to point out, he was apparently attached to direct meet the parents at one point or was oh, interested amazing in it. Um, so it, obviously that speaks to, he's, he saw something in there that he connected to
1: Harry. I, one last connection. Um, you know. Every time I do see like a Rami or an Atlanta or a Mo on Netflix where it's like insanely specific to that person's culture and experience, I'm like, oh, or even the bear, right? Like that seven fishes episode of the bear where they're all like getting drunk and yelling at each other. I'm like, I want to see a seven fishes episode of the bear, but like at the Seder, like why, why can't we have like a really well craft, like a really well done artful depiction of an accurate Jewish life in the 2020s. Like people are living that way. And there are, you know, tensions to be mined, comedy to be mined from it. And it, it exists so beautifully in, in you know, re- representing Rami's experience as an Egyptian-American or Moe's experience as a Palestinian-American or, you know, in Atlanta, the African-American experience growing up in Atlanta. And it, it's done so well and it's executed on such a high level. And I'm and like, I celebrate those shows and I also like yearned for like, why not for what about also for the Jews? Like, how can we get that? Who who is that? Who is the Donald Glover, the Rami, the Mo of the Jewish world? So I don't know how you'll feel about this answer, but as you
0: were going through the FX shows, I was thinking of Dave the Little Dicky show. Oh, which, perfect! Like, yes, and I don't yes. know if he is, you know, he is certainly a representation. But right. going back to our conversation, like I had to just confirm real quick that he was Jewish. But of yes. course he is. Like yes. that yes. is, you know, and he represents kind of that on screen. He's always going to play a Jew, kind of for his career, uh, kind of thing. Were you, but were you talking about losing the little Dicky? I'm not familiar
1: with this. <laughs> it's the show is called Dave, and it's on FX, and it's a uh, he's a a, a Philadelphia rapper, kind of like a you know sort of tenacious D meets rap. rap. So he does like comedy rap, um, and he's very big on YouTube. And he got a show. I think it's on third or fourth season. But that's a very excellent call, Harry. Um, David Paymer plays his dad. Um, once you have David Palmer. In, in, exactly. the, in the show, yeah. then I think it's a lock. But yeah, that's a very, very good, exp- you know, but I feel like counterpoint. And then I want to take it to break because we just ran out of Tom Collins mix and I need to go get some. Um, <laughs> yes, we do. But the joke is that he's Jewish and it's like a crutch and it's like, nah, I'm Jewish. I'm like, uh, I'm at a Christian house. And like this, it's sort of like this sort of in- there's, you know, there's an episode where he's like stranded at a, at an evangelical fan's house. And they like, yeah. it's a similar vibe of, in dave and so like it's played for laughs and it's not um the judaism is not celebrated it's kind of mocked and so that's sort of the diff i'll anyway we could talk about it on our spin always room for more exploration exactly yeah. but of, as i of said i feel like we're, we're overdue for a break this is a lovely like digression to get on but i do want to save time for the categories if that works perfect so we'll take a quick break and we'll be right back Welcome back to Jews on Film. We are here with Noah Gattel talking about Meet the Parents. Uh, now we're gonna talk about some categories. So our first category that we'd like to discuss is our most Jewish scene in the film, Meet the Parents. Who would like to go first? Well, we, we've we
2: already talked about it, yeah. but okay. I, that's all right. It, yeah. I, think it, I think it's the dinner scene. And mm-hmm. I think it's because, it because that's a tradition in Jewish films, as we've talked about in The Heartbreak Kid and Annie Hall, and probably some others that we haven't thought of. Uh, we've got the prayer, we've got the urn, uh, and I don't know. There's something about dinner where it's like um, that's when it all comes to a head in terms of fitting in, like sitting right. at that table with those with those wasps. Like that's when you have to prove that you are part of the family if you can make it through a dinner. You know, like that's that's the thing. And uh, I felt I thought it was just exquisitely painful and this is a film about the Jewish need to fit in and how painful that is. So to me, it's the apotheosis of that. Good word.
0: I'd agree. Harry? uh, Yeah, I I completely agree. I think it's interesting also in that scene, you know, they make a big point about how, like he says, Well,
3: I'll tell you something. It's such a treat for me to have a home-cooked meal like this. Dinner at my house usually consisted of everybody in the kitchen fighting over containers of Chinese food. Oh, you poor thing. What, there wasn't enough food to go around, (laughs) Greg? No, there was. We just never really sat down.
0: And I think it also, it's one of these things where it goes back to everything we were saying in the beginning that it's really just like there's this misalignment. There's just this misunderstanding between, you know, how this could have been different and whether that's like his Jewishness and he was just in what well, you could imagine as like a hectic house kind of moving around not everyone's down at the same time but you make sure they eat you know someone's cooking up a huge you know bowl of food or whatever it is and like you can kind of picture the scene that kind of erratic hectic scene or if it's just you know they didn't have the formality of let's sit down and say grace and you know kind of carve up this meal and like i don't know if this was like this felt almost like you know Maybe I'm flirting with stretch, but like kind of like a Shabbos table or something like a more Mm -hmm. formal thing. Sure. That it was like, and I don't think it was. I think it was just like weeknight dinner. Like I think this was, or I guess weekend dinner because they're kind of there for the weekend. Right. But, um, But it's just interesting. I think it plays into, you know, on multiple levels, kind of how out of place he is, you know, as this Jewish character on the most Jewish like angle where it's the, you know, grace versus you know i guess in jewish culture especially in, you know if you're religious jewish you kind of do your benching your uh your praising to god whatever you want to call it after the meal is the instead grace after meals of before yeah. the meal the grace after meals right that's literally what it's called but um, but then on just every level i think his jewishness pulls him out you know on 12 different levels in that scene
2: i think he does say also that they were standing around the kitchen counter fighting over cartons of chinese food if um, memories yeah. so yeah, that's another yeah,
0: another little this uh, is the dog scene. whistle if that's true yeah. then yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's okay nice scene. for sure i
1: think we're i think we can uh, all agree on that one yeah and they, they, so, they did make a conscious choice to serve pot roast in whereas in annie hall they talk about serving ham just you know something trip. to call out in terms of culinary choices they didn't go for like the like what's the most non-kosher trafe dish right, like, like let's go let's support, go ham yeah. yeah yeah they didn't do that <laughs> so yeah let's move on to the next one harry huh
0: yeah. So let's go to the next question and that should be uh, hopefully ripe for more discussion with this movie. We've already mentioned a bunch of them, but this is, what is the Jewish stretch of the pod? Where can you read a Jewishness, a Jewish angle, a Jewish lens into a scene where, or into just the, the movie generally that may not have been intended by the filmmakers, but you know, with our fun lens, we can kind of definitely see in the movie. So who has any good stretches of the pod?
1: I'll I'll start. I feel like, um, you know, uh, honorary mention is just the Jerusalem bulb that ben stiller yeah. tries to give as like a gift like his jewishness and jack instantly like rejects it huh. or it's like you know it's the rarest plant and
3: oh look at this it's a flower pot with a dirt in it hmm. actually the real gift is what's planted in the soil the bulb of a jerusalem tulip which i was told is one of the rarest and most beautiful flowers in existence Oh, right, right. The, uh, the, the Jerusalem <clears throat> from the Jerusalem to tulipisius genus. Oh, yes, right. yes. Hmm.
1: He makes this whole big to do about it and like really is a it's a thoughtful gift because he thinks he's a rare flower dealer. Turns out it's just a cover for his CIA thing. Um, I was hoping for like a little bit more from that scene. But I guess by virtue of the fact that he's not actually a flower dealer, he just kind of dismisses it. So maybe that could be my stretch—is that he like outright rejects his Jewishness. I'll go with like that. Laying I'll, it all out. I'll, I'll stick with that. I was going to go with some Mister Jinx like left field theory, but maybe we'll save that for another one. Huh? Perfect. Uh, who's next? Well, I I really love that
2: one, first of all, I like, oh, thank you. I never, it actually never occurred to me like the Jerusalem connection when I was. Yeah, yeah I've seen this movie like ten times. It never occurred to me before. It's also something sort of beautiful about him, um, giving him a plant that takes time to nurture uh, for it to grow. You know which. Jack not has. a first impressions yeah, you know, oh, yeah oh, okay say, uh, we're all Monday on board for my stretch out. look at that All <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> right. um mine's mine's a i mean i've given you a lot already um but i there was something to me about the speedo scene oh uh, okay something about that and it, as, yeah, i told you from the beginning like i don't it's a little unclear to me how much of this is just me stuff and how much of it is jewish stuff but something about like um it, it brought me back to to being in the locker room uh in junior high when I was at a prep school and surrounded by wasps and everyone else had you know these guys who were just born with six packs and chiseled pecs and everything and I was not uh you know and I, I don't think uh, Jewish men we're, we're known for our perfectly chiseled bodies um Ben Stiller I should point out has one, yeah. and I think yeah. he works very hard to to maintain that. Uh, he made dodgeball two years later, which I think maybe he he made that movie just so he would have an excuse to get a perfect. <laughs> right. This is before Marvel, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but something about being like having your body exposed the way his body was exposed uh, resonated in me as a Jewish person. Sure,
1: and it's exposing like you know the. the to stretch on your stretch to add a little bit of spice is like you know you're, you're you're exposing your groin, which you know symbolically is like a little bit different for Jews and non-Jews. Circumcision, yeah. absolutely. Exactly. It's and not quite school ties mind. where it's like fully exposed, but it's it's not too dissimilar. Yeah.
2: And he hides the groin as much as he can. Yes. He, he moves behind the fern uh, just to hide that little part of his body. So yeah,
1: yeah I, th- I think you're onto something. I like that, Harry. What do you got for us? This better be good. <laughs>
0: Oh, I think it's it's actually just familiar territory because believe it or not, it's about assimilation. Okay. But but this movie, I mean, first of all, I wanted to go back to just the name and I already mentioned this, but just the kind of that idea of having to hide behind a name, like not only like that, that's a huge part of, you know, at least Jewish American culture nowadays. And obviously when this movie came out where there are a lot of Jewish people people who kind of carry these names from older generations that are, you know, explicitly Hebrew or Jewish sounding. And oftentimes they'll, you know, they'll code themselves. They'll kind of protect themselves from society with like a more Americanized name. Like I, Mm you know, without kind of naming everyone in my life that kind of has this, but I know everyone who like, I talk, I I refer to them one way and then like one of their coworkers or something, you know, says one thing and I'm like, oh, right, I guess that's, or especially, you know what, I see it actually nowadays in, like, my wife is in med school, as I mentioned, so like, you see, you know, these people anecdotally and then you get like their school email, you know, they send you something and it's, you know, it's whatever, it's just like a more Americanized, more Anglicized name. So I think, uh, you know, him burying his name isn't just a setup for Uh, you know just a great punchline like at the end of the movie but it really is evocative of kind of the way that he's had to protect himself had to hide himself uh, to take it one degree further just because we've been mentioning no, well again you keep teeing me up as if it's going to be some crazy insight but I was just saying because we've been talking about Hanukkah Hanukkah it's been on our brains we've mentioned it a bunch of times in this conversation we're recording this about a week and a half before or a week before uh, Hanukkah arrives I don't know when the episode will come out but that's just literally the holiday of assimilation you know the story of that holiday is that it was about uh you know just to give some people context about jews living in israel kind of overtaken by greece by greek rule and the entire the story the way that it's kind of taught down is about how a lot of jews became victim to you know hellenism giving into greek culture and ultimately their kind of redemption the miracle at the end is how they kind of extract themselves from it so i just as like a stretch on the pod, you know, to cover this entire conversation on a kind of assimilation. I just wanted to make that obvious connection that sure. I think has been uh, kind of riding over the whole thing and just say that this was a, a cool movie
1: to pick, you know, just in that context. So wanted to shout that out. Yeah, absolutely. Can I comment? Can I similarly add a little bit of uh, just just uh, for for those who are interested in what Terry was talking about with the changing of the names? I uh, I read a book called People Love Dead Jews by Dara Horn. There's this notion that like Ellis Island, we came in and they changed our name for us. And like it was it was against our we would have been whatever, whatever, whatever. But now we're just gold like their last name, their last name. Right. Um, Turns out she did a lot of research that around this time in New York City, a lot of the changing the name changed like a petitions or whatever, the forms that were filled out were done by Jews, like you said, Harry, to change their own names. And it wasn't really that, like, it was external anti-Semitism, but it was like this internal sort of perceived Jewish shame that made a lot of these Jewish people, uh, you know, change their names to kind of assimilate more to fit in, to become, like you said, Noah, the A... You know to be anonymous that kind of thing so it was all self-imposed i don't know if that was too much of a deviation from your stretch but i thought it was you know something relevant and as you know jews on books like it's a bo- good book recommendation as you said Hanukkah's coming up so if you want, people want to check that out the book is called people love dead jews by dara horn now uh let's talk about the legacy of this film the film came out 23 years later uh, would you say folks that this film is good for the jews
2: I will say yes. Okay. Um, going back to my overarching thesis that it universalizes the Jewish experience, uh, I think that's a I think that's a positive thing. I think it's I think it's done so elegantly that it allows you know there's so many people like myself who have a complicated relationship with their Jewishness who may mm-hmm. not be fully aware of it or who may have buried it, uh, but it's always there you know it, it, waiting to be reconnected to. And I think a film like this uh, can help people create those connections in a way, help them get in touch with their Jewishness, Have, help them make connections between their experiences in the world today and the experiences of their people historically. And that's what we're do- we've done for the last hour and a half on this podcast. And you know, the film uh, allowed us to do that. So I'll go ahead and say, yes, I don't think it has much of a legacy for Jewish cinema per se. Right. I think it's more the product of, of that legacy. But I think um, for viewers, I think I think it is good for them.
1: Harry, what about yourself?
0: Very very similar. I think, like you were saying, just about the legacy. I think this is in that kind of sweet spot where, as much as we want to kind of give it credit for, or you know whatever for being good for the Jews, most people who watch this movie aren't going to think too hard about that. I, I do right. think this movie has more Jewishness in it than its represent than its uh, reputation kind of suggests because it really, I, I think the first time they mentioned like the Jewish grace scene I was like okay like I could jump onto that for our discussion and then they have like the Jesus stuff and they just kept going through it and there's about a wedding and I was like yeah no it is in there so I think that for what it does show the movie is firmly you know I think sympathetic to Greg and lets him express himself and ultimately rewards him for you know stopping to lie and you know, emerging as his true self. And I haven't actually seen the subsequent movies. I'd be interested to see, you know, right. how far that thread is okay. carried. Oh, maybe not so much, <laughs> but, um, uh, but I do think that though, it's not going to be so Jewish to most people who watch it for those who are able to pick up on it. I,
1: I would call this good for the Jews for sure. What about you, Daniel? I think, you know, like on the page, uh Greg is like, you know he means well and things like that he's not super honest at times uh but he, like we said he's put in this very uncomfortable position and so it's like hard for him to to navigate these unfamiliar waters i feel like he does the best he can as i said earlier i i, I would have loved a little bit more jewishness but Noah, i totally you know that's too much i guess for for a lot of mainstream audiences back in the 2000s you know uh so I would say like overall, he he comes out pretty well. There's like a good deal of like slapstick stuff, you know, that we didn't really talk about, you know, like the whole roof scene and the Mr. Jinx subplot and all that kind of stuff. And that doesn't really have much to do with his like Jewishness, but, um, you know, it doesn't speak much in terms of like on the paper Jewishness, but what it represents, I think is, uh, you know, we, we've managed to tease out quite a bit for it. So like... I'm, I'm okay with it. It's not a terrible representation of, of, of Jewishness on the film. But all that aside, no, I do want to know, like we've been talking about this a lot and I kind of want to just get serious and get down to brass tacks. Let's rate this film on a scale of one to five Jewish stars, you know, taking into account things like content, themes, cast and crew. And we're talking about its Jewishness, not how good the film is. But, you know, one is like, Nary a mention of Jewishness in the film. And five, we go talking about like Fiddler on the Roof or Yentl, things like that. Uh, where does this film land for you?
2: I think I'm going to go three and a half, three and a half stars because I, you know, you can't go much higher than that because it is latent to most people who watch will watch the movie. Um, but for me, in my experience, it's a five star Jewish film. Like I think this is mm-hmm. like really oh sure. Fun- sure fundamentally expresses. A lot of my experience of being a Jew in a, a non-Jewish world, which is the world I grew up in to some degree, uh, so I'm going to kind of split the difference. I think I think three and a half feels right to
0: me.
1: Okay, Harry, how about yourself?
0: Um, I really did like that personal connection, and especially at the beginning when you were talking about kind of how this movie, you know, how you responded to it when you first saw it, and I, I really do see a lot of that, you know, Jewish connection to it. I think, Daniel, you said earlier, I think that this might not exist in the pantheon of Jewish movies, because I think it's hard for me to qualify this as, you know, such a clearly Jewish movie when I think a lot of its other ideas come first. But they're still in there. And those ideas are kind of back like the those ideas are like the Jewishness does comprise the premise of the movie. Like the movie isn't just someone meeting their in-laws. Like that happens all the time. Sure. The comedy is because they meet their in-laws and they're so different. And why are they so different? I think we're arguing a lot of that comes from, you know, their cultures and their religions. But, you know, that can be, uh you know, that that there are other things obviously that come to play. But I'll probably give it around like a two and a half I think okay. just like, a, you know, a 50 50 kind of on the line there. I think there is a lot of eh, 275. I'll give it a little bit more. <laughs> I think there is a lot of uh. I, I couldn't convince myself. Um. I, I do think because because there really is like, again, if it was a one off, it would be like a two. But there's the gray scene. There's the Jesus scene. There's a couple others that I know I clocked that I'm not listening. I mean, there's the name thing, which I think, you know, holds some weight in, and and the themes really play in. So two eight five am i crazy i think i'm gonna stop myself there daniel you're gonna have no, to take I... over before before i give this a five more more but... how far can he go <laughs> okay 2.9 2.9 <laughs> is my final, final for the record bucks okay. for the
1: for the spreadsheet 2.9 i might go three just to spite you but to, no <laughs> I, no but i feel like if we think about like the fokker verse in general like the sequel has like dustin hoffman and barbara streisand so i we, maybe we could have you back on no and we'll talk about the next one Yeah, But, you know, I I feel like just that, you know, maybe they're amping up the Jewishness because they got feedback from the Jewish community. It wasn't Jewish enough. Let's get more Jewish in the next one. You know, who knows? But I do feel like the specifics are, you know, passing mentions of him being Jewish. But I think what you're talking about, Noah... In general, like that Jewish experience, the name changing, the the difference of values, the culture clash, I feel like that does uh, ring true to a lot of Jewish experiences. So I'll go with three stars. Um, Noah Gattel, thank you very much for being here on Jews on Film to, to discuss this movie. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about uh, your book, Baseball the Movie? Oh,
2: sure. Uh, yeah, I have a book coming out called Baseball the Movie uh, in May of next year. It is available for pre-order now, although Perfect. we don't even... We don't even have a cover yet, so I don't know if uh, it'll look so exciting to you. But it is there at Barnes and Noble and bookshop and and all the normal places you buy books. And basically, it's a it's sort of a cultural history of America, post-war America to the present, through the lens of baseball films. So I start at Pride of the Yankees, move to the present, and sort of examine how the baseball film changed and reflected changes in American society. So it's it's a little heady, it's intellectual, but it's also hopefully a lot of fun. And if you, if you love baseball movies as I do, you should be able to enjoy it on, on
1: that level too. Sounds great for our listeners. Uh, we'll definitely put a link to the show notes. Uh, we'll put a link for the pre-order into the show notes so people can check that out. Uh, and where can people find you online? Is there a good spot that you regularly post to?
2: Well, I am on TikTok doing some baseball content and some movie content. Just my name, Noah tell The same on, on Twitter. And uh, yeah, those are those are pretty much the best i'm on i'm on blue sky but i don't know what's really happening over there uh so twitter and TikTok are probably your best bets
1: yeah there are a lot of platforms out there and like we're on a lot of them but i don't regularly post because it's just like who knows which site is going to turn into this hellscape tomorrow so as of this recording you can listen to us wherever you get podcasts but uh you know thanks everyone for listening uh as i said you can find us on all the social platforms Make sure to email us at Jewsonfilmpod at gmail.com if you have any suggestions or questions. And thanks for listening. Happy Hanukkah to those, uh, you know, I think at this point, by the time this will publish it, you know, happy Hanukkah, Shabbat Shalom, and have a good one. Jews on Film is hosted and produced by Harry ottensasser and Daniel Zana. Daniel and Harry edited this episode. Follow us on Instagram at Jews and subscribe to our podcast to get new episodes. Thanks for listening.